welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I am Asha Gopal Krishnan, and today we have a selection of three articles from the print edition of The Economist, dated February 12, 2022. Our first recording is from the Middle East and Africa section. Back with a bump. More African countries are letting pregnant girls stay at school. Parents, principals and religious types still need convincing. Sarah did not know she was pregnant until teachers told her. In 2020, her state-run boarding school in Tanzania ordered tests for all the girls, who were returning after a three-month closure caused by COVID-19. When her result arrived, she was expelled and sent home. She was less than two years from graduating. Sarah is one of thousands of girls harmed each year by a law that compelled schools to kick out pupils who were accused of an offence against morality. These expulsions were celebrated by John Magufuli, the previous president, who declared, After getting pregnant, you are done. Magufuli died last year, perhaps of Covid. The government of his successor, Samia Suluhu Hassan, relented in November, saying it would let teenage mums come back into class. Sub-Saharan Africa has roughly doubled the world's rate of teenage births. Only 40% of girls in the region aged 15 to 17 attend school, compared with 45% of boys. This is partly because of policies like the one Tanzania has abandoned. Such rules are self-defeating, since there is a strong link between the number of years of schooling that girls complete and the number of babies they will subsequently have. At least 30 African countries now protect the educational rights of pregnant girls and young mothers, according to Human Rights Watch, a pressure group. Half a dozen have made progress in the past few years. New rules in Uganda, where about a third of girls marry before they turn 18, allow parents to report school principals who refuse to enroll young mothers. Mozambique and Zimbabwe have made schooling easier for teenagers with children too. The last two holdouts still expelling the expectant, are the Equatorial Guinea and Togo. The most celebrated recent reforms are in Sierra Leone. In early 2020, the government ended a 10-year ban on adolescent mothers attending normal schools. A year later, it introduced a new policy dubbed Radical Inclusion that gives pregnant girls the right to remain in class until they give birth and allows them to return to lessons as soon as they wish. Local law considers girls who have sex before the age of 18 to be victims of a crime says David Senge, the education minister. Forcing them to give up their schooling made no sense. Many of these changes were in train before the pandemic. But some 30 weeks of school closures in Africa have made them all the more essential. The Mo Ibrahim Foundation, an NGO, reckons the break deprived pupils in 23 African countries of roughly an eighth of the learning they would typically receive in their entire time in school. That is all the more worrying because they do not receive as much as pupils elsewhere to begin with. In the early months of the pandemic, World Vision, another NGO estimated that, around 1 million sub-Saharan African children would drop out of school as a result of becoming pregnant during lockdowns. Reliable data on the impact remains scant, but the available evidence suggests that teenage pregnancies have indeed ticked up. Youngsters spent more time unsupervised, Contraceptives were harder to come by and violence against women increased. One study of 500 rural adolescent girls in Kenya has found that, after a six-month closure, 
they were twice as likely to become pregnant as girls who had completed their schooling before the pandemic. Governments have more to do. Few of them maintain policies as liberal as Sierra Leone's. Uganda's new guidelines require pregnant girls to leave school before their second trimester, for example, even if their right to return is much more clearer than it was. Countries with enlightened rules often struggle to enforce them, says Ellen Martinez of Human Rights Watch. Principals, parents and village chiefs have to be on board. Mr Senge says he still runs into activists, both male and female, who tell him the new policy on pregnancy is a big mistake. Shabaha Shabaha of the Change Tanzania Movement, a campaign group, says he won't be satisfied until his country's new rules are written into law. Without that, he says, future governments may return to old habits. And they are too late for many, including Sarah, whose child is now almost a year old. We gave you a chance to finish school, her parents tell her. And now you have lost it. The next recording is from the Science and Technology section. The bots in the warehouse. New robots, smarter and faster, are taking over warehouses. Most picking jobs will be done by bots. A decade ago, Amazon started to introduce robots into its fulfillment centers, as online retailers call their giant distribution warehouses. Instead of having people wandering up and down rows of shelves picking goods to complete orders, the machines would lift and then carry the shelves to the pickers. That saved time and money. Amazon sites now have more than 350,000 robots of various sorts deployed worldwide. But even that is not enough to secure its future. Advances in warehouse robotics, coupled with increasing labor costs and difficulty in finding workers, have created a watershed moment in the logistics industry. With COVID-19 lockdowns causing supply chain disruptions and a boom in home deliveries that is likely to endure, fulfillment centers have been working at full tilt. Despite the robots, many firms have to bring in temporary workers to cope with increased demand during busy periods. Competition for staff is fierce. In the run-up to the holiday shopping season in December, Amazon brought in some 150,000 extra workers in America alone, offering sign-on bonuses of up to $3,000. The long-term implications of such a high reliance on increasingly hard-to-find labor in distribution is clear. According to a new study by McKinsey, a consultancy. Automation in warehousing is no longer just nice to have, but an imperative for sustainable growth. This means more robots are needed, including newer, more efficient versions to replace those already at work and advanced machines to take over most of the remaining jobs done by humans. As a result, McKinsey forecasts the warehouse automation market will grow at a compound annual rate of 23% to be worth more than $50 billion by 2030. The new robots are coming. One of them is the prototype 600 series bot. This machine changes everything, according to Tim Steiner, chief executive of Ocado Group, which began in 2002 as an online British grocer and has evolved over the years into one of the leading providers of warehouse robotics. The 600 series is a strange-looking beast, much like a box on wheels, made out of skeletal parts. That is because more than half of its components are 3D printed. As 3D printing builds things up layer by layer, it allows the shapes to be optimized, thus using the least amount of material. As a result, the 600 series is five times lighter than the company's present generation of bots, which makes it more agile and less demanding on battery power. Ocado's bots work in what is known as the Hive, 
a giant metallic grid at the center of its fulfillment centers. Some of these hives are bigger than a football pitch. Each cell on the grid contains products stored in plastic crates, stacked 21 deep. As orders arrive, a bot is dispatched to extract a crate and transport it to a picking station, where a human worker takes all the items they need, scans each one and puts them into a bag, much as happens at a supermarket checkout. It could take an hour or so walking around a warehouse to collect each item manually for a large order. But as hundreds of bots operate on the grid simultaneously, they are much faster. The bots are choreographed by an artificially intelligent computer system, which communicates with each machine over a wireless network. The system allows Okado's current bot, the 500 series, to gather all the goods required for a 50-item order in less than five minutes. The new 600 series will match or better its predecessor's performance and use less energy. It also unlocks a cascade of benefits, says Mr. Steiner, allowing hives to be smaller and lighter. This means they can be installed in weeks rather than months and at a lower cost. That will make micro-fulfillment centres viable. Most fulfillment centres are housed in large buildings on out-of-town trading estates but smaller units could be sited in urban areas closer to customers. This would speed up deliveries in some cases to within hours. Amazon is also delivering more efficient robots. Its original machines were known as Kivas or Kiva Systems, the Massachusetts-based firm that manufactured them. The Kiva is a squat device which can slip under a stack of head-height shelves in which goods are stored. The robot then lifts and carries the shelves to a picking station. In 2012, Amazon bought Kiva Systems for $775 million and later changed its name to Amazon Robotics. Amazon Robotics has since developed a family of bots, including a smaller version of a Kiva called Pegasus. These will allow it to pack more goods into its fulfillment centers and also use bots in smaller inner-city distribution sites. To prepare for a more automated future, Amazon Robotics recently opened a new robot manufacturing plant in Massachusetts to boost its output. In 2014, when it became clear that future Kivas would be made exclusively for Amazon, Romain Molin and Renaud Haidt, a pair of engineers working for a medical firm, decided to set up Exotech, a French rival to produce a different sort of robotic warehouse. The firm has developed a three-dimensional system which uses bots called Skypods. Looking a bit like Kivas, they also roam the warehouse floor. But instead of moving shelves, Skypods climb them. Once the robot reaches the necessary level, it extracts a crate, climbs down and delivers it to a picking station. Skypods, says Mr. Molin, maximize the space in a warehouse because they can ascend shelving stacked 12 meters high. Being modular, the system can be expanded easily. As well as returning crates to the shelves, Skypods also take them to places to be refilled. A number of retailers have started using Skypods, including Carrefour. A giant French supermarket group, Gap, an American clothing firm, and Uniqlo, a Japanese one. Because such robots move quickly and could cause injury, Skypods zoom along at 4 meters per second. They tend to operate in closed areas. If Amazon staff need to enter the robot area, they don a special safety vest. This contains electronics which signal to any nearby bots that a human is present. The bot will then stop to take an alternative route. Some robots, however, are designed to work alongside people in warehouses. 
They often ferry things between people taking goods off shelves and pallets to people putting them into bags and boxes for shipping. Such systems can avoid the cost of installing fixed infrastructure, which lets warehouses be reconfigured quickly, useful for logistics centers that work for multiple retailers and have to deal with constantly changing product lines. When robots work among people, however, they have to be fitted with additional safety systems such as cameras, radar and other sensors to avoid bumping into stuff. Hence, they tend to move slowly and are cautious, which can result in bots frequently coming to a standstill and slowing operations. However, machines that are more capable and aware of their surroundings are on the way. For instance, NEC, a Japanese electronics group, has started using risk-sensitive stochastic control technology which is software similar to that used in finance to avoid high-risk investments. In this case, though, it allows a robot to weigh up risks when taking any action, such as selecting the safest and fastest route through a warehouse. In trials, NEC says it doubles the average speed of a robot without making compromises on safety. The toughest job to automate in a warehouse is picking and packing, hence the demand for extra pairs of hands during busy periods. This task is far from easy for robots because fulfillment centers stock tens of thousands of different items in many shapes, sizes and weights. Nevertheless, Amazon, Ocado, Exotech and others are beginning to automate the task by placing robotic arms at some picking stations. These arms tend to use cameras and read barcodes to identify goods and suction pads and other mechanisms to pick them up. Machine learning, a form of AI, is employed to teach the robots how to handle specific items, for example, not to put potatoes on top of eggs. Ocado is also developing an arm which could bypass a picking station and take items directly from crates in the hive. Fetch Robotics, a Silicon Valley producer of logistics robots that was acquired last year by Zebra Technologies, a computing firm, has developed a mobile picking arm which can travel around a fulfillment center. Boston Dynamics, another Massachusetts robot maker, has come up with a heavyweight mobile version called Stretch, which can unpack lorries and put boxes on pallets. On January 26, DHL, a logistics giant, placed the first order for Stretch robot. It will deploy them in its North American warehouses over the next three years. That timetable gives a clue that progress will not be rapid. It will take 10 to 15 years before robots begin to be adept at picking and packing goods, reckons Zehao Li, the author of a new report on warehouse robotics for ID Tech X, a firm of British analysts. Some companies think their bots will be able to pick 80% or so of their stock over the coming years, although much depends on the range of goods carried by different operations. Objects with irregular shapes like bananas or loose vegetables can be hard for a robot to grasp if it has primarily been built to pick up products in neat packages. The bot might also be restricted in what weight it can lift, so would struggle with a flat-screen television or a heavy cask of beer. Further into the future, systems could emerge to overcome many of these limitations, such as multi-arm robots. So what jobs will remain? On the warehouse floor, at least that mainly leaves technicians maintaining and fixing robots, says Mr. Lee. He thinks there are also likely to be a handful of supervisors watching over the bots and lending a hand if there remains anything that their mechanical brethren still can't handle. It is not just inside the warehouses where jobs will go, but outside too, once driverless delivery vehicles are allowed. At that point, many products will travel through the supply chain and to people's homes untouched by human hand. People will also be employed building robots. 
Amazon Robotics' new factory will create more than 200 new manufacturing jobs, although that dwindles into insignificance compared with the more than 1 million jobs which the pioneer of e-commerce has created since the first robots arrived in its fulfillment areas. A lot of those jobs are bound to go, although many are monotonous and strenuous, which is why they are hard to fill. However, other jobs will emerge. Technological change inevitably creates new roles for people. In the 1960s, there used to be thousands of telephone switchboard operators, a job which has almost disappeared since exchanges became automated. But the number of other jobs in telecoms has soared. As logistics gets more efficient through greater automation and online businesses grow, the overall level of employment in e-commerce should still increase. Many of these roles will be different sorts of jobs, just as there are many different sorts of robot. Our last recording is from the leaders section. Festive but fraying. India's democracy is not as healthy as this month's elections make it seem. It is not just sectarianism that is ailing the body politic. The phrase state election does not do it justice. Over 150 million people have registered to take part. They will throng to over 174,000 polling stations in the course of seven rounds of voting spread over a month. There will be thousands of candidates and hundreds of parties. There are even 39,598 voters aged 100 or more for whom special provision will be made. And all this is just in the biggest state, Uttar Pradesh, of the five that are holding elections in India in the coming weeks. There will be lots of talk of a festival of democracy. And so it will be. Every caste, every sect, every view will be catered for. The candidates include film stars, holy men, feminists and entrepreneurs. Three different sorts of communists are competing. Marxist, Marxist-Leninist and the garden variety. And although the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, which runs both the national government and those of many states, is favoured to win in Uttar Pradesh and elsewhere, its victory is by no means guaranteed. Uttar Pradesh may be as poor as Mali and deeply divided by caste and religion, but it is also a genuine democracy. Its voters have a meaningful choice and often confound the pundits. Just because Indian democracy is full of life, however, does not mean that it is healthy. Its most commonly lamented ailment is growing sectarianism, stoked by the Hindu nationalists of the BJP. In Uttar Pradesh, the party chose as chief minister Yogi Adityanath, a Hindu cleric who casts politics as a struggle to overturn the legacy of 1,000 years of Muslim invasions and return power and pride to the Hindu majority. Such talk leads to frequent discrimination and violence against Muslims and could one day fuel a conflagration. But Hindu chauvinism is far from India's only political malaise. And the BJP is not the only party tainted by it. In fact, the BJP's anti-Muslim rhetoric has been such a hit with voters that other parties too have become ever less willing to speak up for minorities. Few are fielding many Muslim candidates in Uttar Pradesh, for example, although 19% of the voters are Muslim. Other vices are shared by all the big parties. Take another worrying aspect of the selection of candidates. Many of them are criminals. A shocking 43% of those who won seats in the national parliament at the most recent general election in 2019 had been charged with crimes of some sort. For 29%, the charges involved grave offences such as rape or murder. Perhaps unsurprisingly, when these lawmakers arrive in office, they do not devote themselves diligently to the minutiae of drafting laws. Uttar Pradesh's legislature used to meet for about three months a year back in the 1950s. 
Last year, it managed only 17 days. The Assembly in another state holding elections this month, Punjab, clocked in only 11 days in 2021. It is run by the Congress Party, the main nationwide opposition to the BJP. Despite the infrequency of sessions in all these assemblies, attendance is low. And the process of legislating is becoming ever more perfunctory. Fewer and fewer bills are debated in committee. Many are approved by voice votes. Campaign finance is another worry. The BJP has introduced what it calls electoral bonds, which allow individuals and businesses to donate unlimited sums to political parties in secret, in effect. The BJP hoovers up three quarters of the money donated in this way, but other parties are also happy to accept the scraps. It is impossible to allay suspicions that India's industrialists are buying favours from the government, since no one knows who's making donations, much less whether there might be any quid pro quo involved. These mechanical failings are not as glaring as the rise of Hindu nationalism, but they could be highly damaging since all parties suffer from them. Even if voters in Uttar Pradesh spurn the divisive rhetoric and discriminatory policies of the BJP, as they should, the steady corrosion of the internal workings of democracy means that they are unlikely to secure a thoughtful, effective and responsive government. Naturally, that matters very much for ordinary Indians. It also matters for the world. India is the planet's most populous democracy. By upholding political freedoms for 75 years, bar a two-year hiatus under Congress in the 1970s, it has set a heartening precedent for the developing world. But these days it is looking less and less like a model. In a world where authoritarian China seems to grow stronger by the day, it has never been more important for India not just to hold elections, but to repair the underpinnings of its democracy too. That brings us to the end of today's set of articles from the print edition of The Economist. If you want to learn more about AirZelle and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision and print impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Asha Gupal Krishnan and I'll be back soon with the next week's update from The Economist. Thank you for listening.